So I want to talk to three different groups of people today, okay? It's going to land a little differently with you depending on what group you're in. The first group is those of you who you would consider yourselves followers of Jesus. You would consider yourselves Christians, maybe that would be the term you use. Uh, Today is going to land with you in this way. What I hope today does is it reminds you of something that maybe you haven't really contemplated or reflected on in a while, but it's going to remind you of something that if you don't remember this, if you don't fully embrace this, it will impact the way you relate to your Heavenly Father. It will impact the way you believe your Heavenly Father relates to you. So that, that, this is big for that reason. And I hope you walk out of here today with a, with a little clearer understanding, maybe with a little more gratitude for what we're going to talk about and what God has done for you. The second group are those of you who you would not consider yourself a follower of Jesus. You are cynical. You're a skeptic. You, you got your questions and your doubts and all of that. But you're here because you're curious. You're here because somebody invited you and, you know, you decided, okay, I'll explore that a little bit. And I have so much respect for you. That curiosity is an incredible thing, and it's so intellectually honest of you to be willing to explore things. What today is going to do for you is hopefully... Today is going to connect a few dots for you, okay? Today's going to fill in some gaps as you're trying to explore faith and the idea of following Jesus and what that even means. I hope today connects some dots for you. And while you may not walk out of here, you know, deciding, okay, I want to follow Jesus, at least today we'll give you a little bit more information and a little clearer picture of what that means. And then the third group, and some of you may not even realize until the end today you're in this group, but the third group would be those of you who you're not followers of Jesus, but you're right there on the edge. Like you're right at the line. You're just ready to step across the line. For some of you, you know you're not a follower of Jesus and you've been exploring this and you've been asking questions, great questions. You've been processing this through with people and you're to the point where you pretty much get it. It's just not yet become personal. You just haven't made the choice to step across the line of faith. And I hope today is the day you decide to do that. Some of you might consider yourself Christian or, you know, you think you follow Jesus, but as we go through today, you're going to realize, wait a minute, I don't think this has ever become personal to me. And you're going to find yourself in the third group. You didn't even realize when you walked in you were in the third group. But again, I hope today is the day that you make it personal and you step across that line. And I don't have any hidden agendas here, okay? So I'm just going to tell you up front, for those of you who find yourselves in the third group, at the end today, I'm going to give you an opportunity right where you're sitting, to step across the line, all right? I'm going to walk you through a prayer, and there's nothing magical about the words of the prayer, but I'm just going to give you a chance to make this decision, if you choose to, for yourself and to make faith personal to you, all right? But before we get there, if you haven't been with us throughout this series, we've been talking about what does it look like to have an adult starting point of faith? And I think having an adult starting point of faith is important because what often happens is we mature over time Our understanding, our view, our idea about God, Jesus, faith, it doesn't mature with us. We get older, we mature, our understanding or our view doesn't become more comprehensive. It doesn't grow along with us. And the reason is because when we started out, for most of us, we got our views about God or we formed our framework of faith as a child. And we were explained things about God as a child in a way that children can understand them. And there's nothing wrong with that at all. But it wasn't complete. It sure wasn't comprehensive. You, just, you were told some things, and it was you know, all you needed to know at the time. But as we get older, unfortunately, nobody comes along and fills in the gaps. Nobody gives us the rest of the story, if you will. And so sometimes we reach a point where, as we're maturing and as we're growing older and having adult experiences, there are gaps that develop between 
well, I was told this, but that's not what my experience has been. Or, I, it, you know, I was taught God always, but he's not. Or I was taught God never, but I'm watching him do it. Or I was taught this is true, but now I'm, you know, in this class and they're telling me this is true and it doesn't seem to match up. And there's so many discrepancies. And what happens is if you don't have a faith that is comprehensive, if you don't have a faith that matures along with you, then it creates a lot of confusion and it creates a lot of discrepancy and it creates a lot of wrong perspectives and misperceptions. And that's certainly true of what we're going to talk about today. For the next few minutes, I want to talk about a topic that probably feels a little heavy. I'm not meaning for it to feel heavy, but it may land that way with you because it's just something all of us can relate to, all of us have dealt with at different points in our lives. I want to talk about what you do about guilt and shame. What do you do about guilt and shame? Now, when it comes to the religious circles, okay, in a religious framework, Whenever you talk about guilt and shame, here's what, especially if you grew up around church as a kid, here's what we were taught as a kid. We were taught that the way you get rid of guilt and shame is you ask for forgiveness. In other words, forgiveness is the cure. It is the antidote to guilt and shame. And so then we were taught how to get forgiveness. So if you were Protestant, if you grew up in you know, one of those faith traditions, you were taught that at the end of every prayer and definitely at bed, you know, when you laid your head on your pillow at night and said your bedtime prayers, you were taught to always tag on to the end of your prayer and forgive us for all of our sins, amen. That was like a big blanket general prayer. It was not specific. You didn't have to name anything specific. It was just a big blanket prayer, and it covered whatever you had done wrong for the entire day, and it took care of all your guilt and shame. This is, this is what many of us were taught. If you grew up Catholic, it was a little different, but it's basically the same deal. Only you had to take an extra step. It was a little more complicated for you. You had to go see the priest and sit down in a confessional and kind of dump it all out, and then you were absolved of all your guilt and shame. This is just the way it worked. For all of us, and maybe that works okay as a kid, because quite honestly, like how how bad are we as kids? Like how bad a thing can you do, and how much guilt and shame can you really create? I mean, the stuff that you were doing as a kid, you wouldn't stop aggravating your sister, right? You wouldn't. She said, "Stay out of my room." You kept going in her room just to make her mad. So you do you do that kind of stuff, and maybe it creates a little guilt and shame, but that's not a big deal. The problem is, we grow up and become adults, and the the things that we do, I you know, I would say the sins that we commit that create guilt and shame, well, it gets a whole lot bigger, bigger as an adult, doesn't it? Now, when you get to be an adult, and you know this, this is just true for all of us, you get to be an adult and you start looking back and you realize, wait a minute, there's not one little isolated thing here and one little isolated thing here. It's like there's this whole season of my life that I wish I could redo or undo. There's this whole chapter of my life I wish I could redo or undo. There's an entire relationship in my past I wish I could redo or undo because everything that went on in that period of time, well, it created a lot of guilt and shame. And now I feel embarrassed whenever it comes up. I feel embarrassed whenever I think about it. I feel bad about what happened there because, and this is why, this isn't a religious thing, okay? We'll talk more about this in a second. I feel embarrassed or I feel bad because that's not who I want to be known as. That's not what I want to be known for. And so we try to forget it and we hope it never comes up. And yet, isn't it funny how it always seems to circle back again and again and again? It's like, I hope nobody ever asked me about why my mar- first marriage ended. Matter of fact, I hope nobody ever even finds out I had a first marriage. Let's, not, let's just not talk about that, you know? I hope nobody asked me about that money thing and, you know, why I lost that job. I hope nobody asked me about that situation with the boss and, you know, all that that went on. I hope nobody asked me about that dating relationship. I hope they don't even know that I ever was in a relationship with and, you know, what all went on there. hope nobody asked me about my college years. You know, somebody says, hey, tell me about your college years, and your answer is, I went. 
They're like, yeah, but no, 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 I, that's, all I'm, that's all I'm saying. I went. Matter of fact, I can't even really remember anything else. It was all a blur, so I don't want to talk about it, you know. I went. According to the records, I was, I was there. I didn't pass a class, but I was there, you know. I was enrolled. So it's all, we've all got those things, right? We all got a season, a stage, a relationship, a weekend, this moment, and we try to forget it. But isn't it true, like, you're in a store, and you round a corner, and you see somebody, and it just brings it all back? Or you go on vacation with some friends and you end up in the same place that you were and it just brings it all back. And all of a sudden, things that we think, oh, I've gotten rid of it. Oh, I've dealt with it. Oh, it's good. This guilt and shame, I don't have a problem with that anymore. All of a sudden, we don't always call it this, but it comes flooding right back and we try our best to forget it. But we can't forget it. We try our best to forget it, but it's like a shadow that just follows us around. We don't always know it's there, but then suddenly something happens and points it out and it's like, oh, yeah. That's still following me. That's still trailing along. I'm trying to forget. I can't seem to forget. I'm trying to move past it. I can't seem to move past it. And here's my thing. Here's my thing. I would suggest to you, this is the guilt and shame. This is not a religious thing. This is an internal thing. This is a human thing. Now, some of you grew up in religious traditions or faith uh, traditions that took this, and they leveraged guilt and shame to try to control you. I get that. And they made it worse. They made you feel guilty and shameful about things you should have never felt guilty and shameful about. But I'm just telling you, in general, guilt and shame, this isn't a religious thing. The things that you legitimately feel guilt and shame over, you don't feel it because of some religious environment or context. You don't feel guilt and shame about those things because I, the pastor, walked along beside you and said, hey, I heard what you did this weekend. Don't you feel bad about that? Like, I didn't make you feel bad. I didn't bring it up. Nobody was saying, yeah, you should feel guilty about that. It just naturally happens, doesn't it? So I would say guilt and shame, it's not a religious thing. It shows up a lot in some very toxic religious environments, but this isn't religious. This is just a human thing. It's just a you thing and a me thing. It's an internal thing that we all deal with, which is why all human beings eventually reach a point where we start asking the same question. Now, we ask it in different ways, and none of us ask it in the form I'm about to ask it, okay? None of us word it this way. But all of us, in essence, eventually reach a point where we ask ourselves this question. What can wash away my sin? What can wash away my sin? What can wash away my guilt? What can wash away my shame? What do I have to do to get rid of all this? Now, if you haven't been tracking with us through this series, you may see this word sin and go, whoa, that's a little strong. I wouldn't call what I did a sin. Okay, it was a mistake or it was a season. It was just a phase of life. Okay, it was just a season of life. No, no, no. I get that. I understand that. But go back and listen to week two. Okay, I'm not going to rehash my argument. But I would say to you, most of what creates guilt and shame in us, it's not mistakes. Mistakes are correctable. Mistakes, for the most part, are fixable. For the most part, and there are some exceptions, very, very few, but for the most part, mistakes do not create guilt and shame in you or in me. What you do and what I do that creates guilt and shame, for the most part, it's more than a mistake, it's a sin. It is a pre-planned mistake. It is a, I know I shouldn't do that, I know it's the wrong thing to do, I know it's going to hurt somebody, I'm going to do it anyway. That's not a mistake. Like some of us, we're, you know, we call things mistakes, but we're repeat mistakers. Like we plan our mistakes in advance. I'm going to do that at this point, and here's how I'm going to make that happen. Now, that's not a mistake. That's a sin. That's a sin. And so eventually we all reach a point because of our sin that we experience enough guilt and shame that we go, okay, well, what can wash away 
my sin. We don't ask it this way. But we're wondering, how do I get rid of this guilt? How do I get rid of this shame? Or is this just always going to be like a shadow that follows me? Now, I think what most humans do, based on my observations, is most of us try to answer this question in a lot of different ways, but we do it by distracting ourselves. In other words, some of us decide, well, I'll tell you what, I'm going to try to drink away my sin. I'm going to try to drink away my guilt and shame. I'm going to try to medicate it away. Some of us are like, I'm going to try to get in another relationship, and that's going to get rid of it. I'm going to try to work harder to get rid of it. I'm going to try to be more successful. I'm going to try to earn another hundred, another thousand, another ten thousand dollars, and maybe that'll get rid of it. I'm going to try to distract myself by going on adventures and trips. Maybe that'll get rid of it. All of us try to distract ourselves in a lot of different ways in order to medicate, in order to dissolve, in order to absolve ourselves of guilt and shame. For some of us, it's why we turn to church. Some of you are like, I'm going to go to church more often. I'm going to pray more often. I'm going to read my Bible. I'm going to give more. I'm going to do something religious because I think by doing something religious, maybe it will get rid of all of my guilt and shame. But it doesn't, does it? This is the thing. It doesn't. And none of us like to admit this, but the reality is all the things we try don't work. And so then we do what all humans do. We start to make excuses for the season, for the chapter, for the relationship, for the weekend, for the choices we make that have created guilt and shame. And we start saying things like, well, nobody's perfect. Well, I'm not as bad as, okay, it was bad, but have you heard about, I'm not as bad as. Well, I was lonely. Well, I was angry. Well, I was drunk. Well, I was young. I was just young then. It was just a season. It was just a chapter. It was just, a, you know, a part of my life when it was, that was just a thing to do. Like, we make all kinds of excuses for ourselves, but even that, you know, you know this. I don't have to convince you. Even that doesn't get rid of the guilt and the shame. We just try to find a coping mechanism. And so the question is, is that the best that there is? Is it just a coping mechanism, or is there a comprehensive solution for our sin, for our guilt, for our shame. Now, interestingly enough, when you open up the Gospels and you begin to read about what Jesus taught, you find that Jesus taught, he believed, there was a, a, a specific answer to this question. Jesus taught, what can wash away my sin? Only one thing, forgiveness, forgiveness. Specifically, Jesus taught experiencing personal forgiveness for personal sin is a starting point for personal faith. That you want to you start your faith as an adult, okay, here's where it's got to start. It's got to start with experiencing personal forgiveness for personal sin. Now, why would Jesus teach that? Because he understood that your personal sin and my personal sin always creates a debt-debtor relationship. This is so important. Every time you sin, it creates a debt-debtor relationship with yourself, between you and you, with other people, between you and others, and with God between you and God. Now, none of us use this terminology, debt-debtor relationship. None of us on our own typically think about it this way. We don't sit around and reflect on it like this. But there are all kinds of hints in the language we use that shows we can just feel inside there's a debt here that hasn't been repaid. Because what, when you do something that creates guilt and shame in you, what do you say to yourself? You say, I owe it to myself to be better than that. I owe it to myself not to do that again because you know there's been a debt created. You're not living up to your own standard. There's a gap. There's a debt. We say things like, I owe it to them to change. I owe it to them to give them an apology. I owe it to them 
to make up what I messed up. Because we intuitively know when we sin, there's a debt-debtor relationship created between us and another person. And we also know in those moments, we wonder, well, where do I stand with God? I'm not sure everything's good between me and God. And it's because there is a debt-debtor relationship created between us and God. And so the only way to get rid of guilt and shame and sin is to figure out, okay, how do I pay that debt? How do I pay that debt? Because quite honestly, for all of us, it's a debt we can't fully repay. We can't go back and undo what we did. We can't go back and become more perfect to make up for being less perfect. So how in the world do you pay a debt that can't fully be repaid? How do you pay a debt for sin that creates guilt and shame and just keeps following you around when you can't go undo or redo a stage, a season, a weekend, a relationship in your life? Here's what's interesting. If you study any faith tradition or any religious movement over the course of history, pick anyone you want, every single faith tradition and religious movement provides an answer to the question, what can wash away my sin? What can wash away my shame and my guilt? Every single faith tradition gives us something to do in order to absolve ourselves of our guilt and shame. Now, they're all different in what we're supposed to do. Some of them say, well, here's a list of things you got to do, and you got to do these things to make up for the things you did wrong. Some of them say, no, 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 here's some things you got to believe, and here's some sacrifices you've got to make. Some of them say, no, 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 there's some pilgrimages you have to take. There's some places you need to go, and if you go to these places and then do these things in these sacred places, then everything is going to be okay. Some of them say, no, 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 you can't fix it in this life. You're going to have to come back, and you're going to try it again in the next life and see if you can make it better. All of them give us an answer in terms of something to do. But Christianity is different. This is what makes Christianity so unique from any other, what you might call faith tradition or religious movement. See, when Jesus showed up on this earth, he didn't give us any list, and he didn't give us any places to travel, and he didn't give us a, uh, you know, some, a step-by-step plan for how to absolve ourselves of guilt and shame and sin. It's so interesting. Jesus didn't offer something to do as a solution to your sin. Jesus offered himself as a solution. This is what makes Christianity so unique. Jesus showed up and said, there is nothing you can do to make up for that. There's nothing you can do to absolve yourself of that. There's nothing you can do to atone for what you did. You can't make up for it. It's already done. You can't undo or redo what you've done. But I'm not here to give you a list of things to do. It doesn't work anyway. I'm here to personally be the solution for your sin. Now, this is so unique. But this is what the Jewish people believed would eventually happen one day. This is why they believed in a Messiah. They believed that God had promised a Messiah to come, and he would actually be the solution for their sin. Which is why in John, who is one of Jesus' disciples, in John's account of Jesus' life, he doesn't start with Jesus He actually starts with another John that we all know of as John the Baptist or John the Baptizer. And John got that name because he was the very first person in recorded history, as far as we know, to ever immerse or baptize somebody else in water. Now, the Jewish people had a tradition, and here's what it was. If you were a non-Jewish person, which would be most of us, if you were a non-Jewish person and you wanted to become a Jewish person who followed the Jewish God, then there was a five-step process you had to go through. 
And one of the steps in that process was you would find a body of water and you would immerse yourself under the water and come back up. And it was symbolic. It was symbolic that I am washing away my non-Jewish identity and now I'm coming up and recognizing my new Jewish identity. That was one of the five steps. It was a big deal to convert to Judaism. Well, John is the first person who came along and said, no, 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 you don't need to immerse yourself. I'm going to immerse you, and it's symbolic as well. It's symbolic that when you let me immerse you underwater, you are basically saying, I am identifying with John's message. I am identifying, I have a new identity as I come up out of this water, and it's based on what John is teaching. So what in the world was John teaching that would cause hundreds and hundreds of people out at the Jordan River to show up every single day and ask him to immerse them underwater? Well, he was teaching this. He was teaching Jewish people, the Messiah we've been waiting for, he is almost here. Jewish people, the Messiah who is going to be the solution to your sin, he's almost here. And so hundreds and hundreds of people would show up every day and hear him teach. Then they would say, we believe he's almost here, John, and we believe he's going to solve our sin problem. Go ahead and immerse us underwater. We want to identify with that message. And it had happened so often, it happened with so many people, that the religious powers in Israel, the religious powers that were seated in Jerusalem, they, you know, they paid attention. And they became concerned because they were the liaison between Rome and the Jewish people. And they had all the power and they had all the money and they wanted to keep it that way. They didn't want anything to rock the boat. And there had been a lot of people come along over the years who had said, hey, I'm the Messiah, I'm the Messiah, but it would fizzle out real quick. It would be obvious they're not the Messiah. And yet here John is, and he's out there teaching something. They're not even sure what he's teaching. They just know this isn't fizzling out. The crowds keep getting bigger. Everybody is going out there. Everybody is talking about him. we got to figure out what's going on. We don't want him to rock the boat and to upset our power. And so these religious leaders, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they send a group to interrogate and investigate what's going on out there. And they get out to John, and their job is to ask John, okay, who do you say that I am? So they get there and they say, John, we got to talk to you. we got to talk to you. Are you the Messiah? Do you, are you claiming to be the Messiah? And John says, no, I'm not claiming to be the Messiah, which catches them off guard. He says, no, not at all. I'm just telling you the Messiah is about to come. And I want to pick up this conversation because it's interesting how John describes it. Finally, they said, these religious leaders, well, who are you? If you're not the Messiah, John, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself. And here's how John described himself. He replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, one of their prophets. They all knew what he's about to quote. I am the voice, John says, of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way for the Lord. Now we read that and they're like, okay, I'm not even sure what that means. But this meant something to them. This meant something. Specifically, this was a reference to the fact the Messiah is about to show up and he's about to do a brand new thing. He's about to turn everything upside down. There's going to be a whole new way to relate to God. And John says, I'm just here to get everybody ready because he is about to step on the scene. Now, this brand new thing he was going to do, and this thing that John is alluding to, that the Messiah, that Jesus is going to turn upside down, was the Jewish temple sacrificial system. So here's basically how it worked in a nutshell. Jewish people, whenever they sinned, They would bring a spotless, perfect lamb or goat to the temple. And once a year, they would do this for all the people. It was just a big ceremony. 
And they would kill this lamb or this goat. They would drain all the blood out. And then they would put that goat or that lamb up on an altar and they would sacrifice it as a way to cover over their sins. Now, these were really smart people, okay? They didn't believe that killing a lamb, draining its blood and putting it up there and sacrificing it on an altar and burning it, they they didn't believe for a second that forgave them of their sins. They didn't believe that that atoned for their sins. They knew it was just a lamb. It was just their way of symbolically showing God we are owning our sin We are owning we have done things we wish we could undo or redo, and it's created guilt and shame, and so we're doing this as a way to say, ask you, please cover over our sins. Don't hold them against us, God. But it was also a message to them. It was a reminder to them that when someone sins, something dies. When someone sins, there are consequences. Death is the consequence of sin. Something has to pay. And John's going, hey, we've been doing this for 1,500 years. It's all about to change. We've been doing this for 1,500 years. It's a new day. I'm here to get everyone ready. The Messiah is on the way. And then John tells us, the very next morning, this is what happens. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him. This is so dramatic. We, We just miss it. But there are hundreds of people out there teaching. This was such a big moment for them. As John's teaching, as he's baptizing people, he sees Jesus coming toward him. And he says to the entire crowd, he stops what he's doing and says, look, look, look. In other words, pay attention. Hey, you guys know what I've been telling you. He's coming, he's coming. It's going to be a brand new day. That day's finally here. Look, right there he is. Look, and this is how he describes Jesus. The Lamb of God, which sounds really religious and churchy to us, right? It didn't sound churchy to them. See, these Jewish people, when they heard this, this phrase, the Lamb of God, they immediately thought about that lamb that every year was sacrificed to cover over the sins of all the Jewish people. And so you can imagine that when John says, look, 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 the Lamb of God, the entire crowd looks, and they're not looking for a person. They're looking for a sheep. They're looking for an animal. They're going, where is it? John, I don't see it. I don't see it. They assumed, oh, no, oh, no, oh, no, the perfect Without blemish lamb that we've been keeping to do the sacrifice at the temple, somehow it's gotten loose. And how it got out here, I don't know, but that's a problem. we got to catch him before he has a blemish, and we got to get him back to the temple. I mean, they're all concerned about that, and John's going, no, 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 no. Not a lamb, a person. See that guy right over there. Look, the lamb of God. At which point they immediately thought of their sacrificial system, and they immediately connected the dot. Wait a minute, John, we don't know who that even is. We just know if you're telling us he's the Lamb of God, you believe he's about to pay for the sins of our people. Because when someone sins, something has to die. John says, that's exactly what I'm saying. Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Literally, this means who lifts up and carries off the sin of the entire world. Our Jewish sin... Our American sin, your sin, my sin. John says, this man right here, he's going to do something for us we can't do for ourselves. He's going to pay a debt we cannot pay. He's going to be the final and the ultimate sacrifice. You know a lamb wouldn't get it done. It's why we have to keep doing it over and over. It's just a symbol. This isn't going to be a symbol. He's actually going to do for us what we can't do for ourselves. He's going to take away the sin, the guilt the shame of the entire world. 
And Jesus says, you're right, John. I want you to baptize me because I want everyone to know I believe what you just said. I am who you said I am. And so John baptizes him, and Jesus starts his public ministry, and he hints at this idea in his stories, and he predicts it when he's talking to people, and he discusses it very directly with his closest friends. And for three years, this is the conversation going on behind the scenes. For three years, the Jewish people are wondering, well, what's that look like, and what does it mean? And is he really going to do this? And then we come to Passover night. Now, Passover was a Jewish celebration that was so sacred. It was a Jewish celebration of something we talked about last week. A Jewish celebration of this idea that right before God delivered the people of Israel out of Egypt, out of slavery, he asked them to do a simple act of trust. He said, if you trust me enough to deliver you, I want you to put a mark over your door. And by putting a mark over your door, I'm going to pass over you and not the plagues are not going to come on you and then I'm going to bring you out. Of Egypt, And they had done that. And so ever since then, literally for 1,500 or more years, they had had Passover every year. They'd sit down, they would eat a meal, and they would remember the exodus out of Egypt. They would remember this extraordinary act of mercy where God delivered them. So Jesus and his disciples, they're sitting down to celebrate that Passover, okay? They've got the meal there. They're getting ready to do it. I'm sure the disciples are getting ready for Jesus to tell the story again of the exodus out of Egypt. And instead of that, Jesus says something that is so offensive. We can't, as non-Jewish people, we can't get this. It was so offensive in a Jewish setting. Here's what he says. And he took the bread, he gave thanks, and he broke it. And he gave it to them saying, Okay, this is my body given for you. I want you to do this in remembrance of me. What this... We eat this bread, we grab this loaf, and we tear it apart, and we pass it around. We all eat it to remember how God provided for us, getting us out of Egypt, Jesus. No, 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 he says, not anymore, not anymore. Now, as you watch me tear this bread apart, it's going to be a reminder from this point forward of my body torn apart for you. And from now on, when you eat this bread, when you eat this meal, it's going to be a reminder of me and what I'm about to do for you. He's not done. He goes on. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant. Because I'm about to do something brand new. I'm about to introduce a brand new way for you to relate to God and God to relate to you. This is a new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. Every time you drink this, I just want you to remember, again, not what happened in Egypt now. We're gonna, that's old news. I want you to remember that I spilled my blood, I poured out my blood on your behalf. I'm telling you, this was so offensive. He was taking a sacred Jewish holiday and saying, nope, we're not going to celebrate Egypt anymore. This is all about me now. The only way I can know to describe it that might help us understand just how crazy and offensive this was is imagine that this year at Christmas, I invite you to come over to my house on Christmas Eve for a dinner. And we're all gathered around the table, and we're getting ready to go through and do the stuff you do on Christmas Eve. And I say, well, wait just a minute. Before we... Before we eat, I've just got one thing to say. Starting tonight, from this point forward, no longer is Christmas about Jesus' birth. It's about my birth. And here's what I want you to do. You keep giving your presents and doing all that, but when you sit down to read the story of the birth, forget about Luke 2, forget about Jesus' birth. Listen, I've, I've made you a script. Here it is. I just want you to read the story of my birth. It was a warm day in 1975. I just want you to read this whole story, okay? And I want you to celebrate me as you give these gifts one another. You would laugh 
until you realized I was serious, at which point you would come up with a reason to excuse yourself. You wouldn't even eat dinner with us, would you? You'd be like, that guy's lost it. We're not celebrating him on Christmas. It's not about him. Okay, well, that's how it sounded to a Jewish person. When Jesus said, nope, we're not, we're not celebrating Egypt and the Exodus anymore. This is about me now. This is about what I'm about to do. And the disciples scratched their head and were like, we don't get it. And then they go to the Garden of Gethsemane and Jesus is arrested and they all flee. They don't believe. They can't understand. Wait a minute, he's not the Messiah because Messiahs don't get arrested. Messiahs don't get killed. He can't be the Messiah if this happens. And they all lose hope. Meanwhile, Jesus is crucified on a cross. His body is torn apart with the flogging. And he dies from blood loss to pay the penalty for all of our sins. In that moment, Jesus says that God took the the sin of the entire world and he placed them on a perfect, sinless human being. And Jesus paid the debt we could not pay and he met the demands of justice we could not meet. Now, here's what's interesting. Just pause real quick. If the story ended there, none of us would believe this is what Jesus actually accomplished. None of us would even be here. This whole deal wouldn't have gotten out of the first century. Because who's going to believe that a Messiah is in a tomb and yet he's paid for our sins? Who's going to believe that a Messiah is in a tomb but he paid a debt we couldn't pay? Nobody's going to believe that. Who's going to believe that, oh, he ushered in a whole new way to relate to God? He ushered in the opportunity for us all to be forgiven and absolved of our sin. And he's in that tomb over there. Nobody believes that. There's only one reason we believe that today. There's only one reason we're sitting here today and this message got out of the first century. And it's because of what happened on the third day. Nobody believed, including his followers, until he walked out of a tomb. And his resurrection proved, I am who I said I was. And I have done what I said I would do. And suddenly this movement is birthed. Not based around, oh, some good beliefs, but based around an event the resurrection that proved forgiveness was available to us all, that the debt had been paid. So about 20 years pass, and Paul's writing a letter. You've heard of Paul, right? Paul's writing a letter to some Christians who are trying to figure out, well, what can wash away my sin? How do I deal with my guilt? How do I deal with my shame? And Paul knew what that was like better than any of us because Paul was a guy who had decided this Jesus movement's got to stop. And he had had some arrested, he'd had some persecuted, he'd had some killed. He was intent on annihilating the early church until Jesus showed up to him and said, why in the world do you keep fighting against me? I'm alive, look right here, I'm alive. And Paul does an about face, and he spends the rest of his life sharing this message with people. So Paul knew what it was like to look back on a season of life and go, oh my gosh, I wish I could undo or redo. I blew that. There's so much guilt, so much shame, so much sin in that season. But Paul's trying to help them understand, and here's what he writes to them. He says, he, that is Jesus, forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal, here's our word, indebtedness. That's what forgiveness is. Forgiveness just means to cancel a debt. Somebody's got to pay, but you're not paying for the debt. I'm going to pay for it. Somebody's got to meet the demands of justice. You don't have to meet it. I'm going to do it. Somebody's got to die. I'm going to die. Paul says, He canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He, that is Jesus, has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Paul says, listen, I just want you to know, your debt's been paid. 
the debt of your guilt, your shame, your sin, he lifted it up and carried it off for you when he gave his life on a cross on your behalf. He met the demands of God's justice so he could offer you forgiveness. You could be a part of his family. So if you were to ask Paul, Paul, what can wash away your sin? Do you think anything can do it? He would say, absolutely I do. And that's my question for you. What can wash away your sin? What can wash away your sin? If you're honest, if I'm honest, we'd have to admit most of the things that we try to get to wash away, our sin, our guilt, and our shame, they just don't work. Like another adventure is not going to do it. Another affair is not going to do it. Another spouse is not going to do it. Another trip with the wife, more gifts for the kids, doesn't absolve the guilt and the shame. Another drink's not going to do it. Another time at church, more good deeds, more generosity, that's not going to do it. Because future, or, uh, future goodness never cancels out past sinfulness, does it? Future goodness cannot cancel out past sinfulness. So if you ask Paul, what can wash away your sin, Paul? Here's what he says, nothing but the blood of Jesus. That's the only answer. That's the only solution. It is his death and his resurrection that makes it possible for us to be forgiven and for us to be free from all our guilt, all our shame, and all our sin. Nothing but the blood of Jesus can do it. And nothing but a simple act of trust is needed to experience that forgiveness. Now, One of the questions I get from time to time is, well, wait a minute then. Why do I still feel guilty and why do I still feel some shame and why do I still have these memories and when I think about it, da-da-da? When the the memories come back and when all that starts flooding in, here's, here's what you have to remember. You don't have to forgive yourself. Yourself has already been forgiven. If a perfect, just, righteous God is willing to forgive you, then what right do you have not to forgive yourself? If a perfect, right, just, righteous God is willing to forgive you, then how dare you say, oh, I'm never going to forgive myself for what I did. No, when those memories come back, it is not a reminder of your failure. Once you've been forgiven and embraced the forgiveness Jesus offers, it is a reminder of that forgiveness, not a reminder of your failure. It is a reminder of this extraordinary act of mercy that he has demonstrated towards all of us. So, I want to ask you a question, and this is a question that is personal, and it's one that you may need to process through with some people or with your small group or starting point group. But it's a question I want you to spend the next few moments reflecting on. It's simply this. Has there ever been a moment in your life when you told God you wanted to receive his forgiveness? In other words, has there ever been a moment in your life where this became personal to you, where it wasn't just, well, yeah, I believe in and I believe about and I've been around church? No, no. Has there ever been a moment where you personally chose to tell God, I need, I want, I trust you for forgiveness? Now, real quickly, let me just explain. There's a big difference between believing in and trusting in. I had a gentleman a few weeks ago who asked me about it. He said, hey, can you explain to me what's the difference in these two? And we started talking about it, and here's what we landed on. I'll give you this example. If I stood up here right now and I said, hey, I need to inform everybody that this building is on fire and you need to exit. Every one of you, every one of you would believe that I had just said this building is on fire and you need to exit. Every one of you would believe that I exist and I was standing on the stage when I said the building's on fire, you need to exit. There'd be no doubt about that. But whether or not 
you actually exited the building would depend on how much you trusted in me. If you didn't believe I was telling the truth, you wouldn't budge. You'd just stay right there. But if you trust in me, you do more than sit. If you trust in me, that trust drives action. If you trust in me, that trust activates movement. And you get up and you leave the building. Well, there's a big difference in saying, well, yeah, I believe that Jesus died on the cross. and I even believe he was God in human flesh. There's a big difference in believing that and trusting in. See, when you put your trust in Jesus for your forgiveness, what you're saying is, this is where my hope and confidence lies, to be forgiven of my sin. This is where my hope and confidence lies, to have my sin washed away and to be in a right standing with God. I'm not counting on anything else because I don't think anything else will do it. I'm putting all my hope, all my faith, all my trust in Jesus. And I'm going to follow him because I think he's the only way and he's the only answer to what can wash away my sin. That's what trust looks like. Some of you have never done that. Some of you have been in religious circles your entire life, but it's never been personal. Some of you have been exploring, you've never understood, oh, that's why Jesus came, and that's what it's about, and that's what it means to follow him. So in just a moment, if you're one of those people that's at the line and you're ready to step across, I'm going to give you a chance to do that. And then right after that, I'm going to ask the band to come up, and we're going to end today with a brand new song. Most of you will have never heard of it. But we wanted to end with this song because it is so powerful, and it reminds us in such a powerful way of what Jesus does in the life of an individual who chooses not just to believe about, but to trust in him. It's really easy to pick up. You'll be able to sing the chorus especially without any trouble. Here's what the chorus says. On my heart, this word is written, forgiven, forgiven. No guilt or shame can hold me. I'm covered by your extraordinary act of mercy on my behalf. And on my heart, this word is written, forgiven, forgiven. And once God writes that word on your heart, it can never be erased, it can never be undone. You are forgiven and you are free forever. Because when Jesus paid the penalty for your sins and mine, when he paid a debt we couldn't pay, he paid it completely. He paid it in full. So I want to give you an opportunity, if that's never been personal to you, to make it personal right now. And then we'll sing together. Would you bow your heads with me? If you want to personally embrace the forgiveness that Jesus offers, would you just tell him, thank you, Jesus, for doing for me what I couldn't do for myself. Thank you for paying a debt I couldn't pay. Thank you for offering a forgiveness that I don't deserve. Thank you for dying on a cross and rising again to pay the penalty for my sin and to prove that you are who you said you were. So I'm going to trust you. I'm not just going to believe about you. I'm going to trust in you. I'm trusting in you completely for my forgiveness. I'm trusting in you completely to be a part of God's family. And I am confident. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but your blood. So thank you, Jesus, for doing for me what I could not do for myself.
Father, we are so grateful for that. For those who are trying to process this and figure it out, just help them to realize with all the questions and all the doubts they have, this is what's central and this is what matters. And this is at the core. This is a starting point for a personal relationship with you. Thank you for extending to us something we do not deserve. Thank you for writing on our hearts, forgiven. And as we close this morning, help us to remember. Help us to remember that we're a part of your family forever because you chose to invite us and you did what it took to make it possible. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.